Mother Howl is about the son of a serial killer, a fallen angel, and an invisible man. Before jumping into talking about the story and everything, I want to say before I forget that, um, first of all, uh, I don't know if it, I don't know who's creating it, but like a lot of the images and stuff that are being shared socially for promotion of Mother Howl are really fucking great. They look really good and um, they're they're really kind of eye catching. So um, bravo on having those. And uh, who's helping you out with that? Or is that just from the mind of, of Mr. Clevenger? That's that's me, and I'll be honest. I, I may be backing off from that because I'm I'm feeling some guilt a little bit. A lot of that is, um, a few of them are my own photographs, but the the lion's share of them are from uh, uh, AI Mid Journey, and and I think given the writer strike happening and all this, I'm feeling a bit gun shy. I don't know any artists that I that I can you know rightfully say. Do you mind sketching up a, a a cool image for me every week that I can superimpose a blurb or quote on? That's kind of a big ask. So I've been using that. I have a little template set up in uh, something called GIMP. It's a you know open source Photoshop. Um, you know it's 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 AI. Um, I'm leaning back from that, but at the same time, you know maybe I should just suck it up and not worry about annoying people with using AI imagery. But I've got a I got a template set up with the you know book logo and the Detours logo and a color scheme that I'm sticking to and just trying to be consistent with that. Um, my publisher is in the UK and they're lovely people, but I I really kind of feel like I'm on my own a lot of the time. So I that that's how I kind of assuage my panic. <laughs> well, yeah, I I I was like, wow, this looks uh, it's. I don't know what it is. It's just really, maybe it's just my personal, uh, you know, taste or whatever, but those, those graphics that you're posting on like Instagram and stuff, I, I, I really enjoy. And obviously they're kind of in the same color scheme of the book cover. I'm assuming that's, you know, obviously mm-hmm. intentional and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to post images that maybe not are not readily decipherable always, until someone's read the book and then they can go back and say, Oh, I get it now kind of thing. So yeah. I'm having some fun with it really. Yeah. Um, and then also, so good quotes from the book, but then also um, I like to see the stuff that like Steve Erickson had something really cool to say about yeah. the book and Brian Evanson and like yeah. Stephen Graham Jones and stuff. So you're getting um, high praise from like really like solid, like wordsmiths and stuff. So I think that's pretty cool too. Yeah, they, they brought their A game, those guys. The, the the Steve Erickson blurb was kind of a full circle for me. I, I met him trembling like a kid at a Beatles concert, you know, when I was in my <laughs> 20s, when he was working at a used bookstore in LA, and I had him sign Rubicon Beach for me and his other stuff. And so that, that that's really coming full circle, and I, I love that. Um, Amina Akhtar was the was the one that was the the one writer I don't have any I had no prior contact with at all. And she was very gracious. Uh, when I asked, I just, we connected on, on, uh, uh, social media, one of the, one of the medias, I don't know. <laughs> and I just, I hit her up for a blurb and she said she'd be happy to, which really kind of surprised me. Cause I think I've got some really ugly blurb karma in my, in my background. I've dropped a lot of balls when it comes to oh. trying to get blurbs out, you know, back when, you know, my blurb meant a fucking thing. So, so I was really happy to hear from her as well. They offered, they might, they, they came early enough to make the cover print 
And my editor said, we can put the Erickson quote on the cover on the front, but then we'd have to trim it. And I said, let's give Amina Akhtar the front cover and then let's keep the, do not touch the Erickson quote. I want all of it. <laughs> Good. Um, oh, and the other one was, it wasn't necessarily a blurb, but um, Rob Hart from Lit Reactor <laughs> was like, it was that one of those blurbs where it was like, I'm so angry as a writer that like someone, um, someone's so fucking good or whatever. And um, so he I said, really I should have stayed one. retired. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, so uh, um, one of the things that I feel about reading your books um, is like, so I don't, I'm not even going to claim to read a lot, but I read, you know, probably significantly more than the average person. And um, more than I do. I'm certain of that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've been, it's dipped. No, trust me. Let's see. <laughs> But um, there are certain authors that when I read them, um, and this just isn't me just sucking up to you, it's just a fact and you're going to no, have to deal free. with it. It's and okay. I know you're like yeah. kind of humble about shit, but like when I read certain authors, I'm like, oh, right. This is how good it can get. And, um, and so like reading Mother Howell was going back to, first of all, a comfortable um uh, voice and stuff because I really enjoyed, you know, uh, dermaphoria. Der- Good, I can't talk today. Sorry. Dermaphoria and contortionist handbook. Um, so going back to a comfortable style that I enjoy. Um, but you know, just you are a fucking excellent writer as far as like uh, it was in the Jones quote. So I know we're t- like the people that are listening are like, what the hell are they talking about? But Jones was talking about the way that you can effortlessly like state something, um, or, or whatever. And, um, and so, yeah, um, it was nice kind of getting back into a Clevenger book because I just really am so comfortable in the way that you write stuff, um, in general. Thanks. The the, the Jones thing was funny because, uh, it's just, I'm glad it looks effortless. It's not, um, (laughs) but that's the trick is to make it look, you know, never let him see a sweat. I think that was Fred Astaire. Um, for me, one of the, I don't know if you get this from people or not, but one of the things I've got, I've heard from a lot of people who aren't necessarily big readers, they don't understand how I can read a book more than once. Why, why read it again? You've already read it. You know right. what happens. Um, I have two responses to that. The, 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 the uh, not so serious response is, well, why do you have sex more than once? You know how it ends, right? <laughs> Um, which is sarcastic, but not really. There's, I, I might point, I still stand by my point, but then I would say something like, you know, what my serious response is, why do you listen to a song more than once? You know, you know, it's not just what happens. It's, it's the, the, uh, getting there and, and the way the words hit you and, and the books that I go back to over and over, the, the plot is totally laid bare already. I've already read it, but I, I enjoy doing that. And I would, I, I used to feel very self-conscious. I think it's an, it's an American thing or a Freudian thing, or maybe a little of both, but I think, you know, I, I, yeah, I think a lot of us want to like put out these big David Foster Wallace, you know, Mark Danielewski, you know, slabs. And I never do that. And I, and I really, I made, piece a long time ago that, you know, if I have a choice between an 1100 page book that somebody reads once 
in a 180-page book that somebody reads over and over and over, I'm going to go with the latter. And so that's what I try to do. Yeah. Um, and I'm 100% in your camp when it comes to the sentiment about that. And really, if it's just, uh, this came up in a conversation with someone I talked to, I did an episode, I recorded an episode yesterday that's not out yet. Um, but like, sometimes people write for different reasons too. Like I talked to someone recently who, you know, wrote this, you know, novella and the whole purpose was just to like have an entertaining read. Yeah. And that's completely valid. And oh, like, yeah. they weren't expecting anybody to explore deeper or talk about themes of things or bring you into some significant emotion. It was just, I wrote a thing cause it should be a fun experience. And so there's that, but then there's the people who write because they are either exploring something internally or exploring something just as a, as a, um, like a curiosity of their own or something. And I know that Stephen Graham Jones, I feel like a lot of the stuff he writes is he's exploring a fear of his or something like that. So mm -hmm. I, I, um, there's that, but from the reader's perspective, like I think about one of my favorite books is the sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut. And the first time I really understood what that book was about, it was kind of mind blowing that like hit, like the way that he kind of like made his point and so I go back to that book because of the way he got me to the conclusion, the way he got me to feel that feeling is not something that I felt in a different book. So yeah. Um, yeah. I'm totally in your camp about that. Uh, going back and reading books again and again is, is about what you got out of it. Right. Yeah. I, I, uh, I interviewed Helen Phillips a while back. I might be really annoying and dropping a lot of names, but uh, bear with me. But Helen and I, I the title of the, the the discussion I put out there, I called it "Strange Familiar," and it I didn't know this until I was looking for the source of, of the quote. I don't know if you've ever heard that quote before, but you know, you make the strange familiar and the familiar mm -hmm. strange. I always mm -hmm. thought it was it was writing based. It turns out it comes from anthropology. It's basically a way of of not othering a culture when you're writing about them. But I've always thought it was really good writing advice that good writers make. They make the strange familiar. You know, Stephen Graham Jones makes things like a family of of trailer trash werewolves, right? With yeah. a, as a coming of age story, as preposterous as that sounds he makes it utterly believable and ordinary and, and acceptable. But then you also make the familiar strange. And those to me are the, are the times when I find books are really just really arresting. Um, I wish I could remember her name. Some um, uh, read me this quote from a, a woman describing holding her baby and trailing her finger through its hair, like, like the surface of a cupcake or something like, like swooping the frosting on your fingertips. So the metaphor works on a number of levels, but you also have that moment where you go, yeah, that's it. That's exactly what that's like, that yeah. it's endearing and sweet and little tiny flickers like that where you go, yes, that's it. Or for me, I love reading I, that, that makes, a, you know, you feel really connected when, when you have that kind of moment. Stephen Jones does that over and over, you know, I remember one of his lines describing the way a woman was like, had a pair of work gloves on, how she kind of quickly just raked her knuckle to, to wipe her lip mm. while she was eating. It's little tiny things like that. I forget how he described it, but moments reading where you go, yes, I get it. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily a profound thematic 
message of any kind. It's just these little flickers of, of, of feeling like, yeah, connected to exactly what the author is talking about. I love having those moments and I'm, I try to create as many as I can. Yes. Um, that you absolutely do. Um, and mother's ho- mo- fuck. I cannot talk today. Mother Howl. <laughs> mother Howl's no exception to that. You can say and, that uh, when you hit your shin. Mother Howl. <laughs> if there's kids but, in the room, you don't want to swear. <laughs> That's a good point. I'm going to have to think about that. Um, there's a, there's a kid's book out at the library. I forget the author, but it's called duck on a tractor. And I, I just, that's, I, I always thought that's, that's a thing you can say if you, if you smack your shin and you don't want to offend grandma, you can say duck on a tractor. It sounds really profane, but it's not nice. No, it's yeah. I'll, my girlfriend has a eight year old, so I'm, I've found myself finding creative okay. ways to not be vulgar. So, um, that's I'm putting that in the back pocket. Um, we were You're just welcome. talking about, uh, yeah, thank, <laughs> thank you. One of the things that I've been hearing lately in conversation with writing is um, something to the effect of like the more specific you are, the more universal it is or it feels. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like that's something that um, Jones does very well. Um, but I feel like that's something that you, you're pretty adept at as well. Um, and I, I, if, if I was a better podcaster, I would have examples of that, but, um, uh, yeah, I feel like that ties into the thing that we were talking about, about creating those moments where you're like, I get it. Um, I don't think everybody, um, tries that, uh, or, you know, is good at that, but that's definitely something that's in your wheelhouse. I, I, it's, it came from a, the lesson came from a number of sources. Again, Stephen Graham Jones being one of them, one of his like lists of writing tips was about specificity. Um, the B.R. Myers Reader's Manifesto book, which I know is very divisive, but I loved it, although I don't think I would pass muster with him, you know, at all. I, I always try to use um, adjectives, adverbs, similes, and metaphors as a last resort. Right. And that's not to say the book isn't loaded with them like anything else, but if I need to modify a word, well, let me see if I can first find a better word that doesn't need modifying. If I can't, then I'll go with the modifier. Um, you know, trying to write, it's a good writing challenge to, to try to write without metaphor, simile, or grandiose scattergun modifiers to, to bolster your point, mm-hmm. to try to nail the exact word or phrase that that describes something or conveys something and and that's why it takes me so goddamn long to write a book so (laughs) so um would that be a moment where you're like kind of reading through something you wrote and you identify a word where you're just like uh i don't know about that one And, and then you dig into it or um do you do specific passes just for like language and, and like word use. Um, you might be getting well, in the weeds on this one. <laughs> you know, that's fine. It's, it's, it's that, well, Hey, I wrote this book a long time ago. Um, and my writing process changes with each book. I try to be a better writer with each one, but, but generally speaking, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think most people who know me now at this point know that I write all my dialogue separately. I'm really yeah. specific about that, but I do have, I keep what I call, you know, a running list as I'm working. I have a list of problem children that I, I, I make a note of like this. I, have I used this turn of phrase? Have I used this color or word before? Have I 
or something that doesn't sound right. I just want to keep the words flowing. But when I edit, yeah, I do go back in layers. I make multiple passes. One is just strictly like looking at my modifiers. One is making sure I've got, I don't have a lot of repetitive sentence structure or that all of my sentences start with the same way. So I do work in layers. Um, but I, I, yeah, I'm not sure I can get more specific than that. Something will jog my memory. <laughs> well, in the very small amount of editing I've ever done, um, I've found that if you just go through something, just looking for everything at once, that's the best way to miss stuff. So yeah. if I was going to build a workflow, that's what I would do. I would be like, okay, we're only looking for you know, um, this specific thing. And that way I can focus and I don't, I don't run over something that I, I should have noticed. So, um, I got It's that, that would be an interesting thing to hear d- different people's, um, processes, but I got to imagine that like, if you're going to be that meticulous, like you almost have to kind of just narrow it down to, we're looking for words that start with the letter P like, obviously, that's yeah. not thing, but you know what I'm saying? Like that kind of thing. <laughs> it, it keeps you from being overwhelmed as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and as far as I'm, I mean, I want to do as much as I can before I have any kind of feedback or send it to an editor. There's no point in having someone read something and give me feedback and, and pointing out a bunch of things that I could have found myself if I'd put the time in. I want to get things from them that I'm completely missing. So that's the other reason behind that. Um, this kind of ties into one of the thoughts that I had about specifically about mother Howell, which is um, uh, the character Icarus and uh, his unique speech patterns or way of talking. His dialogue is, is uh, specifically, you know, um, Oh shit. I just had a word in my head and it felt like great Rob. Uh, It's, it's very unique in the way that he talks, but then it's explained in a cool way too, where, um, as so he's, and, and I'm going to pause before we go deeper into that in writing my notes, I described him as a heavenly being because he's not quite an angel, but like ostensibly right. he's some sort of like, you know, other, other thing in the story in the, in, or at least from his perspective. Um, so is heavenly, heavenly being a little too like heavy handed or would that be accurate to no. what he represents itself as? Up up until the very last draft, recent drafts. In fact, the draft my agent originally read. He, you know, um, uh, someone. You know, the the doctor refers to him. He asks him, "So you're an angel, right?" And I don't I don't recall if he still does that or not. But um, yeah. okay, yeah. So no, it, it it's I refer to him as an angel, even though he doesn't like the word. But heavenly being is fine. Celestial being is fine. Sure, yeah. It's just it's just not the Judeo Christian, you know, notion of well, it's the Mother Howell. That's what you know. That's, that's right. his word for God. Yeah. Which oh man, I can't wait to talk about that too. Um, but his dialogue, the way that he talks, is explained. I'm going to not get it exactly right, but that on on his way down, falling toward Earth. He just kind of looked at all, you know, he just looked at language in general and pieced together what made sense kind of in a way, right? Yeah, he, I, I think the term, I don't know if he uses it or not, but the term I described, I think to one of my editors or my, it was was that uh, he basically had it downloaded into his brain. He's yeah. falling. He's going to hit the ground. So here's, here's English, go. So he <laughs> kind of cherry picks among, you know, what were his meaning is 
he thinks is clearest, the Queen's English or street slang, and obviously a lot of made up words as well. Um, and uh, that for me was really, I, I can, I can point to most anything in this book or anything else. And I can tell you where that came from, why I approached it that way for the life of me with the gun to my <laughs> head, I could not tell you where, uh, when or where or why I decided to introduce Icarus to the story. Um, but here he is. All I wanted to do was just have some fun because like, I mean, I, I think I was getting really tired of rewriting sentences over and over, trying to make them perfect because that's just the road to madness and it, it's never going to happen anyway. So with Icarus, I just wanted to have some fun and just kind of like yeah. just threw off the constraints of the rules Um and ultimately he came, you know, he actually is quite consistent with his speech. It's not all that unusual. He just swaps common prefixes and suffixes and things like that. And it became very natural. It was just for me, it was a way to enjoy myself. And, and, and if I ever felt getting worked up or stuck or annoyed with something, I just write a passage of Icarus and kind of loosen up a little. <laughs> well, the explanation really just kind of, it's it's not a it's not something you belabor. It's something that's just briefly mentioned at some point, but then it sets it up to totally make sense because like this isn't someone who learned a language through either immersion or studying or something. It just right. all popped in there, and so there's no um, cultural context or anything. It's just right. What 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 are the words I would use to convey the thought the way that makes sense to me, external to like. A, a world that uses this language. So, um, but then it does, it opens up the door for fun because I think that um, it's definitely the most quotable character um, in the book for like, for fun reasons and stuff. It's uh, I, I, I asked my French translator, you know, if he was going to be okay with it, he goes, it's going to be a nightmare. So <laughs> it could be the reason the book is still not, I don't know, but, but it's, I just had fun with him. I, I didn't want to make this, beatific genteel kind he's not a bad man he 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 does not hurt anyone even though he implies he might he won't he doesn't he's he's a good person um yeah. he just doesn't have a lot of patience um uh, <laughs> his his it's that whole sort of i went to harvard mentality you know for this so he's, he's in his mind, he's got these memories of, of doing things in the cosmos at the, at the beck and call of the mother howl. And now he's just stuck on the ground here, you know, for what? And he's, right. he's just not going to suffer the fools. That's all. Right. It's yeah. And like, he describes it nicely too. And at one point he's trying to explain to, I think the the therapist or, or whatever, when he's talking about like, imagine you suddenly find that you're an insect or whatever, that whole passage, um, puts it into perspective well. So you, you like, you get a little like nugget of what his, what he's going through kind of. And that, and that's kind of what happens over the course of the novel. His, his memory does start to fade. He starts to wonder and, and doubt himself. And, yeah. and uh, it, it took something I've thought about in the past, like, like, I don't know if I'll ever get to it, but like with the, the one part of the vampire, you know, we, everybody, you know, has, not everybody, but a lot of authors have their take on traditional lore, you know, horror stuff, vampires, werewolves, again, back to Stephen Jones. And I've always, I've often thought about, okay, so you're 500 years old. 
you still have the same brain we do. You may yeah. you may be immortal unless it's silver or garlic or whatever. But but I would think. I mean, my my brain before the age ten, it's it's really just skips and starts. There's there's yeah. flickers, and at, between that and mid teenage years, there's slightly larger chunks. So if you're five hundred years old, I'd think anything beyond eighty is just a blur. You're not going to remember. You may maybe you lived through the Revolutionary War, and you're not. You may have one good anecdote about Washington, but that's that's it, right? Uh, right. But vampires are always treated as though their memories are just these infinite hard drives. Um, bit of a digression, but that's what I wanted with with him. This idea that he had all this awareness and possibility and and stuff that is now crammed into this tiny brain, and it's not going to hold at all. And it's yeah. bleeding away throughout the course of the story. That's uh, yeah. I have a, I have a follow up thought to that, but going back to the general vampire thing, um, yeah, that was a digression. Didn't see that. <laughs> no, <coming, did> <laughs> no, but like it brings, it brings a, a, a thought to mind, which is like, I challenge myself on, on my memories <laughs> all the time because I know my mind is lying to me. Mm-hmm. I, for a long time, I thought my first, actual memory was of my second birthday party and like i could tell you i could tell you where i was sitting at the table i could tell you what looked like what was outside the window and everything and eventually i ran across a picture and i was like oh i saw that picture that wasn't a memory it was me remembering seeing the photo and then my mind just assimilated it in a wrong way i go back and forth about the uh the space shuttle explosion um because i was like you know however i was i was a kid i was in like grade school when that happened and um in one memory, I was in school watching it in class. And in a different memory, I was, you know, at the babysitter before getting, you know, to school. And I have to go online and look up what time of day it happened to like know which one is right. So yeah, there's a fallibility to like the way that our brains work in general. So mm-hmm. um, try to cram like the knowledge of the universe into, into it and see what happens. It's not, yeah, it's not going to stay. It's like cramming for a test. You may have it all for a brief period, but it's going to fly out in, in yeah. very short order. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things I liked about uh, how you represented that too was, um, and this ties into a bigger theme than I was thinking about, but um, he, Icarus gets to, you know, gets, gets down, he's doing his thing. And, um, because of the nature of him being just like a random dude who appeared out of nowhere, he, you know, is in danger of um, like being seen as like an indigent person and like picked up and like taken in by the police. And well, his, exact, like his exact moment he gets there, like it's witnessed and like, he's picked yeah. up by the police right away because it looked like he was trying to kill himself. But the cool thing that I liked was, um, the way that treatment, the way that, um, the system in, interpreted what treatment he needed to get better was directly having a negative impact on his situation, or at least he perceived it to be that way where like the medicine that was supposed to fix him was actually doing more harm than good. And I, I know that kind of like was a literal thing that was happening in the book, but also speaks to kind of a bigger theme of like, and I think it even is, is mentioned where like sometimes um, the, like the, the medicine that they use, uh, you know, makes the the voices that you hear do something, and it's like not a, it doesn't always end well or something. So it's even kind of like directly approached. But um, the whole idea of like how medical treatment for mental issues um scrambles you, I, I thought was was addressed well too. 
It's it's really it was a for me it was the target was more just the 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 lack the lack of it even even if the the medical treatment was all spot on and good the fact that we just put such a low priority on it yeah um, and and I could go on we all could go on about the state of privatized medicine here in the U S. Um, is it's just our medical system is just terrible. So, so yeah, I, I really didn't feel like I needed to lean into that social commentary too much. I figured it would, it would speak for itself. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 it's one of the reasons I, I made an effort to not make, you know, Dr. Finn a bad guy. I just wanted him to be very, a very overworked guy. I right. wanted him to be just, just at his limit doing the best he can with, what little resources he has um that was important but yeah beyond that it's it's a pretty easy comment to read into right <laughs> yeah um yeah and, and like so there's our 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 um the medical system and everything but then there's also just like social support in general which is just mm-hmm. that's i mean that's that's a theme that is examined uh like throughout the book as well, because not just Icarus and the kind of bureaucratic loopholes that he has to jump through just to like exist as a person. Um, uh, that's part of it, but also Lyle, the main, you know, the protagonist mm-hmm. has to go through like through no, you know, kind of no fault of his own. At one point he made a bad choice of who to give a ride to. And then yeah, now he's like tagged in the system as this bad. Well, and it goes earlier than that because you know, just being yeah. tagged as like, you know, the, the son of a serial killer, but right. I know I'm, I'm talking a lot, but, um, the general idea being that like the bureaucracy that we have to go through in order to be considered like normal or a good citizen or just to exist is, is, is pretty crazy, um, in general in this country. Yeah. Just, just the, 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 even, even getting a marriage at city hall, getting married at city hall just was more rubber stamps and, and, uh, uh, I don't know where that comes from, but but like I said, it's it's not so much an attack on on the system as much as 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 an, as, as a cr- criticism of the lack of support, you know, and and that we put behind it. Yeah, everybody is overworked. Everybody is taxed. There's you know appointments take weeks after week after you know weeks out. You know when you know you. For some urgent medical thing, Lyle's in a catch twenty-two. He was in a car wreck that wasn't his fault. He needs painkillers, but he's on probation, so he's yep. got to take a he's got to take a regular drug screening. So what does he do? I, yeah, that that stuff. I don't I don't know where that came from. You know why that I why that was so I was so preoccupied with that, but yeah, it, it fairly well saturates the book. Yeah, I think it all just makes for really good. Um, uh, it makes for a rich environment for characters to exist in. So um, there's definitely a tone uh, to the story and, and um, you know, obviously themes, but the tone of it is like these people, um, you know, going through uh, what they're going through. And part of it is like the systems that they encounter and things like that. Um, switching gears a little bit. Can we talk about sound? Um Sure. And like here or in the <laughs> in the in the story. So okay, um, I, I want. I'm curious, and this is just me. Kind of like sometimes I think too hard about stuff, or sometimes I miss the mark on stuff. But like, so the book's called Mother Howl. Mm-hmm. 
and um, uh, hang on, I actually have notes about this. Uh, and all right, so the book's called Mother Howl. At one point, uh, as Icarus is going through his like you know medical treatment and stuff like that, he he goes deaf or loses hearing and like it's mm-hmm. out of sync and everything like that. In order to find the person that he's on Earth to like help or whatever, he has to follow a tune. So mm. it feels like there's kind of a wavelengthy kind of theme going on, um, whether that was intentional or not. So is there something um, to that or why why that seemed like a good vehicle for kind of like Icarus's um, journey? Again, I couldn't I couldn't tell you where Icarus came from. I mean, I can I can, you know, we can pick them apart like any given scene or bit of dialogue <laughs> and I can kind of, you know, break it down. But like the start of it all, I don't know. I'm just, I just, I didn't want him, like I said, to be a, you know, a evangelical Christian angel. He's, he's, this is outside of all religion stuff. He's just from above and something about, I don't know, the electromagnetic spectrum, the idea that everything is just variants of one frequency, not sound though, but I, you know, but it, it, sure. it seems like a natural, but even sound, you've got these different frequencies that are all really just one wave. You could, but this, that's just like the surface of the water. It's the same water, but different size waves and, uh, you know, uh, speed and pitch and all the watery wave terms. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from, uh, but originally, originally the book was called Saint Heretic. Uh, a lot of people remember that fiasco. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm pissed. I, I didn't, I, at the time I was so fucking broke. I couldn't, I had the URL. I, I just, I didn't even have 30 bucks to renew the URL. And if I, I could have sold it to Metallica or somebody and retired, but, um, I had to change the title. I needed to, and I wanted to, and I didn't know what, so in, in, all that was in suspension. I was trying to figure out what the new title was going to be. And at the same time, brainstorming, like how does Icarus see the universe? What is his religious, what is his spirituality? And I just was coming up with a way of like, what's another way of saying the big bang, the center that, that blast at the middle of all creation. Um, And I came up with, you know, mother howl. And after that, this idea of sound uh, just seemed to, to, introduce itself at the right moments. Um, I was in a music shop a lot. I don't play music. I was getting a tuning fork for my parrot. It's a long story. I don't have a parrot anymore. Let's not go there. Um, but um, I would just, the two guys were talking and I just remember one of them saying the sound of a supernova is F above middle C. Now I have no idea if that's true. I don't think it is. It doesn't make sense. If there's no atmosphere, then the sound wave isn't, but he said, yes, F above middle C. And I tucked that away in my brain decades ago and, and found a place to plug it in. I think between this idea of the mother howl and then the sound of a dying star and that, you know, it, I, I, I wish I, I wish I had a good anecdote beyond that to say, here's what I was thinking. Here's the grand theme, but I don't, I just kind of like let it happen. The violin player is based on a real guy though. Oh, cool. There was, uh, a, was, there his was name, a, is that Roger? 
If I'm yeah. remembering correctly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a guy, I never talked to him. There was a guy when I was living in the Bay Area, he, he was a, a, a homeless or a, a houseless guy living. He, he was busking in the subways all the time. And I used the term generously. Um, he had he had a violin that he'd fished out of a dumpster. I, I never had a full set of strings, and he would just be just just ripping and shrieking, making these horrible migraine noises. But he was there earnestly. He even had a music stand with little cardboard on there. Oh, and, wow. and and I one time I saw him. He wasn't playing. He was sitting down, putting God, God knows what kind of symbols on this cardboard. Um, and so I don't know if he got his Jolliard grant or what, but I, you know, for what, just didn't see him after a while, but, but I always just, I loved that. And maybe I'm romanticizing a really unfortunate situation. I don't know, but that, that that's where Roger came from. So yeah, it just things, I, like I don't know, sound just kept talking to me. So I kept throwing it in there that, and I've had tinnitus. I've heard it's pronounced tinnitus, but it, that just doesn't sound right. But I've had oh, it my yeah. whole life. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I I didn't know. I I thought that's just the sound you heard. That was your default sound without anything happening. But uh, yeah, like the that that distress signal, that emergency yeah. broadcast, all the time. It's a blast. So, wow, wow, that's crazy. Um, uh, but so even um, what is it? The untuned? I think they're called. Yeah, yeah. So the like. Untuned. Yeah, there was just the, the things that were more of like that aspect of the book it had kind of a theme to them. So, but to me, I think of in a scientific way, the way that like sound is very mathematical and stuff. So there's like a lot of science to to the way that it all works, which would make sense in the grander scheme of things. So it really did fit. And at one point I was like, Rob, you need to think deeper about this because there might be something to it. <laughs> So you got me thinking on that one. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I mean, once, once I kind of lock into that, the other stuff kind of just pops up, you know, when, once your brain's in that zone of thinking of that sort of, that's, that's yeah. not my best quote, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, we get, we could probably talk about Lyle and the main character and, and kind of yeah. his, his situation <laughs> and stuff. That's the thing. He's, he's like, not as colorful. He's, he's the main character. He's just not as entertaining as Icarus, but I like him. Well, it starts out, so I will say that in the beginning of the book, not at the exact first page or anything, but in that first kind of thought when you're introduced to um, how this kid finds out that his dad is a really bad person, um, it was just so lovely the way that, and I'm going to butcher it, but like um, the kid's watching TV or something in one room, the parents are in the other room, and like he sees something on TV, he goes to the parents' room and he just says, mom, and like, you know, like it you could tell by the way you're describing it that like, you know, it's kind of like the worst is true. And then like, it ends with him saying mom again. Um, and that really just like put me in a place in the beginning. So, uh, I feel like it was a hell of a good start to the book where it really kind of threw you off balance with, um, okay, this kid's starting out the story about this kid who's going to be the main character is starting out really challenged. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not getting sunnier <laughs> really after that for, for Lyle. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know, I don't know how old you are, but, but I, I'm old enough to black and when I was a kid, black and white TVs were normal. That was a thing. <laughs> Color TV was a big breakthrough. And 
and I will always, it's been permanently etched in my brain, the, uh, a, a dark room with a black and white TV on it, it has always looked to me like it's a, it's a really surreal glow that we don't get anymore with our flat screens and our intertubes gotcha. and such. So, uh, that's what I was calling that. That that's a very vivid memory for me as a kid. Yeah. Um, and so, th- uh, you know what, now I'm thinking I'm challenging myself. Where, where, where were you with color? So, um, when I was a young kid, five, six, seven, um, our first TV was like a black and white TV. Right. And it, at some point in the ensuing years, like we, when I was probably nine or 10 was our first VCR. So like, you know, um, that's, that's where I land age wise on all of that, but no, that's yeah. a really, it, it, it's a striking, um, way to start Lyle's story. Um, in general. Yeah. Well, I wanted, I wanted to, Icarus is not the antagonist, but in in many ways, I wanted him and Lyle to be sort of opposites of the same coin, you know, opposites, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so Lyle, you don't, you don't even learn his name for the first five or six pages. I don't think he's the boy and the prose is very measured. In fact, it's broken out in these very short vignettes yep. and it's very, it, very gradually, you know, it's Lyle sort of comes into focus like a, like a, you know, a Polaroid in your hand, like kind of, sharpening Icarus crash lands in fireworks and, and spectacle. And in fact, Icarus, the first word of that chapter, the first is his name. So the very first time you see Icarus, that's the first word you get is Icarus fell. So Icarus sort of explodes and appears in, you know, very grandiose fashion. Lyle sort of fades into focus. And the, and the story is really about Lyle coming into that focus, owning himself and and shaking off you know his fear of his father's legacy yeah and um so the name thing i didn't pick up on that but the name thing because the name thing is a really big deal uh he uh is is, is a junior in a situation mm-hmm. where your dad your dad's discovered to be a serial killer if you have that name man forget about it um, yeah so he basically is escaping not just the legacy, but the actual name and the entire, you know, story, um, which brings to, you know, one of my favorite things and we don't have to linger on this, but like uh, a guest appearance from uh, <laughs> our friend from contortionist handbook. So yeah. um, the thing that the only thing I'll say about that, besides I fucking love when there's like, um, uh, you know, a familiar character that shows up. Um, he obviously helps with the documentation and stuff like that, but the way that he's depicted, like, you know, when he's eating food and talking and everything is just very, uh, deliberate. And, um, it was, uh, it was cool for me to like, first of all, see that character in the book, but just like the way that he presents himself. And he had a really cool, um, thing that he said too, about, um, it's just words on paper. It's Mm -hmm. not, you know, if you expect this to change anything, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to do it again. You're going to be disappointed like that kind of thing. So, he knows from his experience that like changing your name doesn't change who you are. So I thought that mm-hmm. was a really cool way to kind of like kick off the beginning of the book too. And for me, it was just fun because the handbook is all first person. 
and it's very manic. It's, it's hyper accelerated. So it's fun because he, he kind of cropped up in Dermaphoria very briefly as well. Yeah. And I always have fun describing him from the outside. From the inside, his mind is moving a million miles a minute, and he, and he is he is he's considering every angle and throwing out you know possible just rapid fire. But from the outside, he is he is robotically awkward. Right. Yeah, that was cool to see. <laughs> um, and always, I, I I love it when people do crossovers, but you're it. You you don't do it for the sake of here's a character I know like there was a very specific need in the book for this person to escape his his who he is and and so that made sense to have him in the book and it it also helps anchor the time frame because I'm I'm I really have just never found a way to to I I'm not comfortable yet with cell phones and digital stuff and texting and fiction I don't know how to weave them in so I I try to skirt them whenever I can yeah um, I want people talking to each other and let's face it, you know, a cell phone is never going to be as noir as a payphone <laughs> ever. It's not going to happen. That's very true. Like, yeah, regardless of the wallpaper or whatever. Um, but yeah, like I thought about that too, because it anchors him in a specific time where technology is, is not as uh, omnipresent. Uh, so doing something like changing your identity is a little bit more bulletproof or, you know, you know, it can be more incidental. He happened to run into a person that could help him out, which like if I suddenly needed to change my identity today, like I'd have to go on the dark web and all this stuff that I've never experienced. So, right. Um, and yeah. I, I do it wrong. I'd go on the dark web and it's, so, Hey guys, how do I get a fake ID? And there'd be, you know, badges knocking on my door <laughs> an hour later. I would, I would do something stupid. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so, but then uh, the thing that I like about Lyle's story is that there's like a generationality to it. And um, there's a, there's a letter that his grandfather writes to his mm -hmm. dad at one point, which I think kind of expresses a lot of um, kind of the tragedy of Lyle's history. Um, <laughs> and the sad thing is Icarus for all of his work just found the wrong fucking Lyle. That's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're definitely yeah, yeah you're definitely right about that. Um, <laughs> but he says um, the Lyle's grandfather basically he says that you know it's madmen breaking the hearts of their loved ones, and really that kind of comes down to like all of the stuff that's kind of been challenging or gone wrong for his family history is you know these men who leave or they do terrible things or whatever. And the people that they damage in the process. Um, and then seeing how Lyle is challenged to not be that person kind of, mm -hmm. which if I'm getting this right, also involves kind of embracing his real self, as opposed to the person that he like changed to be in a way. Yeah. I, I've, a lot of it came, you know, I don't know where you're at, but there, there's this, you know, the older one gets, there's certain things that you start to think like, oh my God, I'm my dad, aren't I? The first time you yell at somebody on your lawn or something like that. And, and you know, 
so my brothers and I talk a lot about that as we're all getting older. Like, oh crap, I I look in the mirror sometimes if I just wake up and I see my dad. Oh shit, I'm dad. You yeah. know. Um, so that was part of it. The other thing that was really driving it though was was and I've seen this over and over again and I talked to Rob Hart about this a little bit uh, uh, the other day. He was interviewing me, and we. Uh, how many times when when someone is is outed as some kind of heinous monster, you know, like a priest at a church is is you know exposed or accused, the wagons are circled, you know, uh, uh, parents, you know, if, if a kid says that the stepfather is molesting or the mom, you know. 99 times out of 100 calls are a liar. This idea that we, because to believe her or to believe whatever the accusation is to question years of your life of yeah. intimacy with this person, nobody wants to believe their loved one is a monster. Nobody wants to. With Lyle, I just thought, what if somebody believed it? What if yeah. somebody said, oh, yeah, that tracks. I'm out. Like what kind of cavity is that going to make of your life? What kind of fun? I mean, clinging to the illusion that someone you love is, is not the monster that the world knows them to be at least gives you some semblance of, I don't know. Can't even finish that sentence really. But I mean, the idea behind Lyle was he believed it. He knew. Mm -hmm. And as a result, his, you know, his life is just a gigantic fucking vacuum because he, he knows his dad's a monster. He has no dad. What kind of person does that make you without that kind of force in your life? Yeah. Does that make any sense at all? If I connected to your question at all, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, where it, and, and this is something where uh, for me, what I pulled from it, I'll, I'm going a little per personal my parents split up when I was like less than two years old and he moved mm -hmm. to Alaska. So he moved physically as far away as like you could possibly be from me uh, while still being in the United States. And I never really saw him much. Uh, we saw him a couple of times when I was like in my teens and stuff, but that man was just by choice, very absent. And um, mm -hmm. it's interesting because that sounds like that's the worst thing that could happen. But like I talk to people who had, you know, divorced parents where the father was present and that made it worse. Like that was more yeah. complicated. It caused more problems. So um, for me, those like where it taps into my personal experience is like the total absence of a person almost made it easier for me to get through um, like on a day to day. Whereas like if I saw the turmoil between parents all the time and everything like, um, but it also gave, it made it really easy to just say this person's like an awful person and write it off. So, uh, I don't know, like I was thinking about that a bunch when I was, when I was listening, reading the gen generationality of like all these, you know, men doing terrible things, but, um, I latched on to like who they leave behind and like the mm -hmm. impact of on the people they leave behind. And so when, um, Lyle's going through everything he's going through and seeing how it's having a negative impact on his marriage and his family, um, the question I came up with is like, would he have been capable of just saying, I'm going to forget about this. I have this beautiful thing in my life and that's enough. Like, so I don't know if like, that's kind of where I was, that's what I was looking for when I was reading it because 
I think that's kind of where my experience kind of pushed me. Lyle, the thing that he wants the most is to just erase that part of his life and move on and be done with it. But, but unconsciously he's, he's, he doesn't know who, who this guy was. that got him this ID. He's always wondering, you know, he is this fear of being exposed means he's always kind of poking the bear, testing the waters. So he's always doing stupid shit that somebody of his age and experience should know better Mm-hmm. he says, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to forget about that part of his life and move on. But the fact is he keeps testing the boundaries. Is this Lyle Edison thing going to hold? Is anyone going to find me out? And as a result, he ends up, you know, getting tickets, you know, pushing the buttons when it comes to dealing with cops and basically doing every possible wrong thing until he finally wakes up and realizes that's what he's been doing. Right. Yeah. And like, there's kind of that, I feel like it's kind of a dawning realization toward like the later part of the book that he's reflecting on why he's doing those things and like what kind of uh, results like maybe he doesn't want, but he's expecting or something. Yeah. I feel like that kind of like ramps up toward the later part of the book. Yeah, and and with you know the first my first two books there there was a there was a, a romantic element in there but let's be honest it was a very adolescent one it was very <laughs> it was you know Vincent's all of his relationships were just drug fueled and and just you know uh, not not that there was an element of sincerity to them but they were not necessarily whole or healthy they were just early they were young yeah. and I wanted Lyle to just. I wanted this guy not to be such a, you know, so immature. I wanted this guy to have for Lyle. It was a matter of it there. There's, it's not always about you. There's more than just you. That was a horrible thing that you came from. Your dad's a beast and you should not have inherited that legacy. You should have been you know treated the way you were just because you were his kid, etc. Regardless of the justice of that or lack of justice, Lyle's realization, you know, had to be like, it's not a, it's bigger than me now. I have a, I have a fucking child, you know? Yeah. And now he's got, you know, he, it finally dawns on him. He's, he, he didn't change his name legally. It's illegal. He never, you know, now his wife has this name. She married him. Her birth certificate is virtually fraudulent as is. So it just kind of the dominoes fall from there and that's what kind of wakes him up. Yeah. Um, Right. The stakes are different because it's not just him. Like if it was just him and, and you know, the, um, the bill came due, that's just on him. But now he's like yeah. potentially destroying like the most important things in his life. And like, yeah, that's yeah. a huge realization for sure. Um, one of the things that I was talking about recently, I'm trying to remember who I was talking to. I think it was maybe Frank Bill um, was... Um, Pub day. Yeah. Frank Bill's pub day uh, yeah. today. <laughs> Happy pub day for, for, um, congrats, uh, Frank. The dirt. Yeah. Uh, which is, it's right down there. There we go. Anyway. Yeah. Rob got a copy of that. That That's cool. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> they, <coughs> Frank, yeah. you listening, me, Frank? They sent me two. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Frank sent me a giant box of stuff a while back when I entered the library. No, nice. He's a, he's a real sweetheart. Um, yeah. No. And his book is great. So I don't want to, cut into your time to talk about that. But uh, it, yeah, this book is really good. Um, 
shit was they saying? Oh, there's there's a whole thing in his his latest book where uh, there's an idea of a lot of the times when we go through trauma and um, and these awful things in our life, um, we want to know that there was a reason that it happened. Like why me? Why, mm-hmm. why now? Why this and that? And a lot of the times the explanation is there's no good answer. Like it no. just happened. Could have been anyone could have been any time. Sorry that it was you, but like, that's just how it is. That's how life is. So, um, I feel like we try to fill those unanswerable questions. We try to answer those unanswerable questions. And, and so, um, we kind of almost build up a mythology of like the reasons that things happen, regardless of whether it's accurate or not too. I, I wrote about that at length. Um, I, I wrote a piece for the Coachella review called dark matters. Uh, I, I think I get really frustrated at that. This, this, the notion, I'm, and I, it's not to say I'm cynical. Sometimes it just happens and that's the way it is. Suck it up. What I am saying is this this scrambling to have this cause and effect that's so clean to things that maybe just don't have them. Yeah. Um, and and that was really important when I was writing the chapter where he finally meets his father face to face. I I did not want to even give Lyle the satisfaction of a denial from his father. Um, I didn't want there to be any notion of closure or any sense of his father was abused or anything like that. I, I didn't want to have that neat, you know, um, USA channel sort of bow on there. <laughs> right. I wanted Lyle staring face to face with a guy who freely chose to do those things because he liked doing them. Yep. And, and that monster genuinely loves Lyle and I, he was not prepared for that. It was really important for me to not make that a, such a, a clean wrap up scene. It was very important that it, that it almost have Lyle reeling more than answered questions for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, that was, uh, one of my favorite parts of the book is like that, that kind of final face to face, because you're almost, you go in expecting to see the person you've told yourself about the whole time, not the person that you're actually going to see sometimes I think in those situations. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my buddies were going to do a short film of that chapter. It turned out to be untenable uh, for a host of reasons, but I remember doing the, uh, I sat for the audition, the guy they wanted to have, have play Lyle senior. And this guy, I, I, I believe his name is James Carpenter. He is a, a, I hope I'm getting his first name, right. James, forgive me. He's a Bay area career actor. Um, older, very distinguished looking gentleman. He comes into my buddy's apartment. And the first thing he says was kitties. He just grabs Scott's <laughs> cats and he's petting them and everything. Just a sweetheart of a dude. He sat down at the table. Scott had the video camera set up and he had the, you know, the, the script, the dialogue. And he said, okay, go ahead. You're, you know, action, whatever. And he just transformed and he scared the piss out of me. Wow. I mean, it was, it was, I, I just developed a whole new respect for like really good actors. He turned on a dime and it was the same guy sitting there. Mm-hmm. He just, he just, he was really menacing. It was astounding. And afterward, he was just a sweetheart. We went to lunch and we, you know, 
<laughs> you know, talked and it was great. That's awesome. <laughs> you mentioned something a little bit earlier about um, choosing to uh, believe that this person was, was a monster. And so like that brings up the, the letter that Lyle's grandfather wrote to uh, mm-hmm. Lyle's dad, the, the serial killer guy. And um, I think one of the most heartbreaking things in the book is reading the part where um, like, obviously uh, Lyle's grandmother is just totally destroyed by the reality that her son is a monster, but the grandfather's like, just accepts it, like not accepts it, but like believes it, believes he's a monster and can't, um, can't bring himself kind of till it's too late to just comfort her and say like, you know, the thing that she needs to hear because he just doesn't feel that way. And that was a real, and I, I might be butchering a little bit, but that's the general idea. And, um, that was, that was one of the most like really kind of gut wrenching moments for me was like looking at the aftermath and how like, the bad thing that happened that this person did just, you know, rends people apart. It's it's that letter actually was the, the, the start of the whole book. It, it, that letter was actually originally a short story I wrote um, called the fade. And I, I, uh, I never circulated it. I just, it was my original website years ago. I just slapped it on the original website. I think it was a thank you to the Velvet folks for being mm-hmm. such troopers. It was much shorter than this. The original version was shorter, but that was it. It was just a, a letter from this guy. I don't know where it came from. It just flew through my brain. I was between drafts of Dermaphoria, and so I just knocked it out and posted it. And I started asking, you know, later on, like when I finished with Dermophoria, so who's Lyle? And that's how this whole book started. Wow. So that book was, that letter, <laughs> the shorter version in the short story, The Fade, was was really what, with the beginning of all this. Yeah. It, that's awesome because it is, yeah, it's got a lot of that, like, it's that, especially that moment just really like impacts like the, like, that kind of insanity that happens to people like when you got a monster that, you know, you love like, and then it makes me think of like, if I suddenly found out that like someone who's been like the closest to me for, you know, my entire life ended up being an awful, horrible person, like you were saying earlier, like what would my reaction be? And yeah, I think denial can be something that just, you know, it, you know, endures. So yeah, it, it got I mean, me thinking. We hear it all. I mean, you know, you hear it just it, it even lesser. I mean, you, you find out some, you know, your your significant other is cheating on you or your business partner of your, enti- you know, 23 years together has been embezzling, um, yep. you know. Yeah. Uh, these kinds of things, our brains just kind of go, no, did not happen, isn't happening. And that could be rough. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's um, it got me thinking about a lot of stuff. Um as far as like in general, um, would you think, do you think of, of the ending of the book as being optimistic? Yes. Yeah. I was the most optimistic book I've, I've, I've written. It's not, (laughs) it's, it's, uh, it's, it, the only thing that keeps it from being a complete happy ending is we don't know where Sarah stands. Um, and it was really important for me to give her, you know, some volition to not just be this, you know, uh, eyelash flapping 
backing her man all the way. Her concern is about the child. So she's at the trial. He says, I love you. And she nods. And I, I, I wanted to give her that much, but yeah. I, my intention was that it's optimistic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's how I took it. But, um, I think I'm generally an optimistic person, so I don't want to just assume too much. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I, I, but I, I think of it kind of like, uh, I don't know if you, do you ever watch the show justified? I've, I've, I've not a lot. I've seen a few episodes a while back. I, it, it is good though. Yeah. Does it matter if I spoil like the very end of the no. series for you? Okay. Yeah, go right, go right, go right. So yeah. like one of the, the themes that runs throughout um, the series is so he's got an ex-wife who they're kind of throughout the six seasons on again, off again, and um, eventually have a kid together. But um, you know, his happy ending isn't that he's with her. Like the very final, like part of the story is um it's just that like he kind of got over his bullshit and he's like living a normal life in a way where he gets to see his kid, but he doesn't, he doesn't get the girl. So like, mm-hmm. um, uh, like, but it's like a, it's enough kind of feeling. And so um, that it, it, I'm reminded of that when I think about this ending where it's not your storybook ending, but um, it has optimism, even if it's like not, what you know you would want because we invest time reading about these characters and we want you know them to be happy we want them or whatever we want for them but uh sometimes like like progress is good or like just knowing that there's a possibility that we're we're moving in a in a positive direction i think is is a good ending so i think it's kind of a justified ending in a way at least for me well good glad to hear it yeah that uh (laughs) That la- I had the last line in my head very early on, and I usually do. That's us- that's both both books prior to this have had that, and the one I'm working on now. I always have the last line. It comes to me very early, and it, that's kind of my my compass that I'm using as I'm working. I'm always going towards that. It's either tacked up on my desk or the last page of my notebook. Yeah, that's awesome. Is that? Do you find it's hard to fit that sometimes? Like. Has there ever been like this catastrophic change you've needed to make in order to fit no. that? Or is, yeah, no. you're always kind of moving in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I have, I have actually, I've never done this uh, on, on my, my newish podcast. Um, but we have some listener questions. So, uh, Oh, more than a, one. Yeah. I've, uh, a, a, a small one and a bigger one. Um, okay. And they're not necessarily about mother Howell because it's not out yet and she hasn't read it yet. So, uh, but it's just other stuff. Um, so let's see how this goes. Um, I've read a couple of Craig's short stories and found them to be absolutely brilliant. Does he plan on ever producing a collection or two of his shorter work? I'm, I'm not very prolific, so it'll be a long time before I have, have enough to do. I would like to, I don't know. I think since I first was published, I've got maybe eight short stories out there. I don't know. (laughs) Someday I'd like to, but honestly, I don't, I'm not very prolific and I don't work on multiple things. My philosophy has always been everything I write is, is I'm writing on my deathbed. This is my last chance and all of my energy is there. This is this, 
It's all here. There's if I, if I never write after this, then I've got to do it here. So I don't have a lot of irons in the fire. I'm always focusing on one thing. Someday I'd like to. It's nice to hear that someone likes my short fiction now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm thinking about where your short fiction lives. Obviously, Warmed and Bound, um, the anthology that came out in 2011. And the book anthology, let's the not an- forget. <laughs> the book anthology, which, um, yeah, uh, that's early on in our, our friendship relationship. Um, the San Francisco Noir. Uh, yeah. That's a, I Num- really enjoyed that story. Um, Numbers game, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Let's see. Um, a couple are at least one is in Sensitive Skin magazine online. Um, uh, Bernard Meisler published that one. The story that is the 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 seedling of the work in progress I've been sh- just dragging around for years now. Um, uh, Vapor Trail is um is on the rumpus and that's that's what mm. i'm especially proud of and yeah. um my most recent was in the outcast press anthology um and felt it shall be found um sunder yeah right right <clears throat> yeah um maybe i'll be ambitious and i'll pull together a bunch of links where people can find that stuff um, yeah i'm trying to think of it oh it, uh, i'm blanking on the on the guy's name but he did the one called la in a thousand words or something oh like yeah that. michael paul gonzalez yes yeah and i think he was at the bombay beach lit festival yeah i didn't was. meet him though and i wish i had oh um, yeah huh. Maybe I did. I don't know, but I don't. I don't remember meeting him. So, I was. I like that one. Oh, and um, Barrel House a long time ago published one. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about. I have that. Um, it's it's amongst the books somewhere. Yeah, definitely. I was very proud of that. It was the mugshot stories, and and yeah. they said you can. They they gave you the mugshot and and the facts of the of the person's arrest, and they said you can either you know write that or you can make up your own story entirely. And, and I made up a, a story that stayed true to the facts of her arrest and even incorporated some local history. I forget where it took place, but, but it was, it was like, um, what's the Ruth Witherspoon movie, Dick about the Watergate where it's factually oh, yeah. on point, but, but how they get to those facts is just purely <laughs> fabricated. Nice. Um, I had a lot of fun doing that one. That's yeah. You're dusting off all these memories because of stuff that's happened over the years. And I, you know, it's not f- front of mind, but yeah, like, yeah. Now that they're coming up, I'm like, Oh yeah, that one. Oh yeah. That one. <laughs> trying to think. Yeah. I, it would be, Oh, I mean, and black clock, black clock magazine. There's one in, in black clock. Yeah. One of issue 16. Um, I forget. I'm blanking on the name actually. But it's also, I think I'll do, yeah, I think I'll do a little roundup of stuff that's easily available for people to find and read Um, because uh, I think that would be, yeah, I think because of this question, I'm inspired now to, to like kind of gather that stuff in case maybe she has read all of it. Yeah. Shoot me those links because I don't, I'm probably (laughs) missing some. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Um, All right. You want to do the other question? Sure. Let's let's. This is the this, that was the warm up. That was the yeah. That was the warm up question. This one's okay. like a little bit longer. It's the bigger paragraph there. So. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, wow. 
I'm just going to read this. And if I have to like reread it separately, we'll do that. But um, he also seems to really enjoy exploring themes of isolation or the potential for isolation, wherein the characters manufacture attachment to others through illicit means, e.g. drugs or helping others with a new identity. These experiences are often fleeting and will eventually result in the isolation that the character is trying to avoid. Why does Craig want to explore that particular subject manager? What triggers ideas for his stories? Is he attracted to the other media literature with similar thematic subject matter? That was a lot. Do you need me to re-go over any of it? No, no, no. I get it. Um, Unfortunately, I don't think I have an answer for this person. Um, I've I've said before, if, if I knew why the things I write about, if I knew exactly why they, they snuck into my writing, if I knew exactly why I was obsessed with them, I probably wouldn't have to be a writer. Um, Mm. These are not things I talk about in day-to-day conversation. These are not things that, that, that occupy my mind. Otherwise, Uh, you know, identity names, memory, isolation. I, I don't know. Um, Here's what I'll say, though, and it, it it echoes a bit about what I said with um, yeah, the the dark matters piece I wrote for Coachella Review. <clears throat> I I will always push back when I'm called transgressive or or dark. Um, I don't lose as much sleep over it anymore. I mean, because I was in an anthology <laughs> of transgressive fiction, so it doesn't rattle me. But I'll always push for specificity when someone calls me transgressive or dark. Um, I say that because what's transgressive? Like, uh, okay, drugs. There's a lot of drugs in my first two books, but that's never, nobody ever singles that out. The sex is all consensual and vanilla and all three books. And I can even count my fourth one everything I've written published combined, the sex would fill maybe two and a half pages. Um, yeah. There's no violence. People live with the aftermath or possibility of it, but it's never an event that happens on the page to move the story. There's no violence. So what's so transgressive? <laughs> what is so fucking dark? And the only time anyone has ever answered that for me, you know, um, I don't know if I should name him because we know we both know him, but I, I'll I'll be nice. I'll be play it safe. But but he said, you know, the person in your book is entirely alone. That he has he's talking about Lyle in this case. You know, he has he has a family, a wife, and friends, but he seems absolutely alone in the universe. And I said, okay, I it, I'm I'm not saying that was intentional. What I'm saying is that that. There are there are things of of most people's summer beach reads are filled with just ghastly horror. I mean, and it's not necessarily graphic, but most people's we, we, the true crime wave obsession that's happening in the U.S. that I'm part mm-hmm. of. I love some of that stuff. Um, most people's Netflix queues are just full of just mayhem and butchery and all sorts of like cruelty to people. But none of that is in my books. If if being alone is what makes me dark, then I think that's a converse. You know, calling me dark or transgressive is really sidestepping a better discussion. 
Okay. If you're going to call me dark, look, there are things in James Patterson's books I will not read out loud yeah. that, that I would just, that made my skin crawl. Like, where the, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> um, and yet he is multimillion. He writes books with Dolly Parton and Hillary Clinton. You know, yeah. I mean, nobody calls him dark or even maybe gritty on one or two titles, but he's not dark. He's not transgressive. If, if talking about a fundamental piece of the human experience, loneliness or isolation, if, if singling that out is what makes me dark, then that's a discussion I'm interested in having. I, I think we have our priorities backwards. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and you made me think of something that might totally not make sense, but um, so you said like, cause you're examining the human condition. You're looking at shit that happens to people more or less a lot. Um, which the first author I think of is Vonnegut. Like, I feel like he hung his hat on talking about either the absurdity of life or the cruelty of life or, you know, like whatever it is. And I don't know. I, I never got labeled that way. Maybe he's considered dark because he has just a negative outlook on a bunch of shit, but like, yeah, um, that's that. I don't know. That took me to him. And so I don't know if that makes any sense, but like, you know, um, that's where I landed on that one. <laughs> it, it makes sense. Like I said, if I knew exactly why this stuff, you know, bled into my fiction, I probably wouldn't be a writer, but it's there. Um, uh, I just think it's a worthwhile discussion to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, um, yeah, I, I mentioned before, we were talking before about this, this always, this, this need for cause and effect, this, this neat way of having an explanation for all the horrible things. It's, it really echoes that same point. Um, um, someone who is abusive and mean or murderous bastard was abused as a child or put through the system. And that, that is very often the case, but, but what about the people who aren't, who are just that way? Yeah. You know, there's, there's nothing for you to hang a hockey mask on. There's no, nothing to personify. It's just there. Mm -hmm. That's a hard thing to face. I, yeah. I, 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 I keep saying monster and I don't, I don't like saying it because monsters aren't real. And I think when we start calling, killers and rapists and all this we call them monsters if, if maybe if we stopped calling them that and said no these are people that that made these choices we might approach criminal justice differently yeah because calling them monsters means automatically they're beyond the pale and they're, they're the exception right mm -hmm. um and i i don't know in my head i'm making sense i'm connecting back to loneliness but i think if i try to push that if i try to close that thread I'll just start stumbling over my words. I, I hope I come close to answering the question. I don't know. Well, let's, um, I'm, I'm wondering if this is going to go anywhere, but like talking about the kind of last part of that is, uh, if you're attracted to other media and literature with similar thematic subject matter, um, I don't know if there's anything to go on there or just kind of what types of literature and media do you enjoy? Oh, all of it. Um, uh, part of writing, it just means you got to read a lot and yeah. not stick in one genre. Um, I, I, like I said, I, I do kind of ride the true crime wave. I, I, I like all sorts of things and I don't necessarily gravitate towards that stuff. Cause I got plenty of it that I need to like, you know, I've got the abscess I need to drain out of my head <laughs> and get it out. So, um, some of the stuff I like is, is considered dark. 
Um, but, and I'm guilty of the thing I was just pushing back on, but you know, in general, I'd say no, I like, I like comedies as much as anybody else, you know? Well, I think maybe the point you made earlier kind of represents how I've grown to feel about things is, um, like the point you were making about how, like, there's things that Patterson wrote that you wouldn't say out loud. I've found that like, you're not necessarily going to find the thing in one specific place. Like I, you know, I've read, you know, mystery thriller books that have, you know, tickled a nerve that has nothing to do with being a mystery or a thriller. It's like made me think deeper about stuff. So um, maybe an openness to just like find good storytelling where it is, is a, is maybe a good philosophy. I've, you know, 10, 10 years of, reviewing books for me, I, you know, probably started out really snobby and stupid. And the more I read and the more like widely I read, the more I realized that like a children's book could smack me in a way that I never expected. Um, so like, it's yeah. kind of what my mind goes to in this conversation is like, you know, you know, you're not always going to know where you're going to find a thing that like, kind of like speaks to you. Yeah. I, I I don't know if I answered her there his question. <laughs> I tried. Um, well, maybe there'll be follow ups in the future. Uh, <laughs> we'll just do the we'll do the follow up episode where we just talk about like yeah. follow up questions from from people who listen to this. In preparation for doing this conversation, um, I did go back and I watched the Smoke and Mirrors short film that was made about a specific part of this book and. Um, mm-hmm it was interesting to kind of revisit that video and see that depiction of um, that part of the story and everything and contrast it to, you know, like the finished product that everybody's about to get. Um, so uh, I don't know. It's been a little while, um, but yeah, I, I, it was nice to kind of go back and revisit that kind of that representation of that part of the book. I, I can tell you a couple things about that. Um, Obviously, you know, it was mainly one chapter, but they had to squeeze in a couple of other things from other chapters for the sake of a clean arc. They they changed the title to Smoke and Mirrors because they didn't want to give too much away. Um, uh, but uh, Troy Jackson played Icarus. He may have been credited differently. When I met him, he, he introduced himself as Marcus, uh, but I think on IMDb, he goes by Troy Jackson now. And I saw, I, I had the chance to, I was there when they when they were auditioning people for that part. And um, most people played Icarus for laughs. There were two people that played it straight, which is how I wanted it. Yeah. Troy came in all smiles and handshakes sweetheart of dude but when he started when he launched when he just got into character like there was current running through the floor and the very first time he was reading i heard him say he said i will still be humbly serving at the beck and call of the mother howl and the way he said it i said okay that that's the title i wasn't sure about that was going to be the title the reason yeah that's the the title was that was kind of the front runner but i wasn't sold on it i thought that's just that doesn't make any sense but as soon as troy said mother howl i can't yeah. do it like he does but well, there was I like said, a growl okay. to it yeah yeah he just he just had this stentorian voice uh it's just and i said okay done okay problem <laughs> wow. solved um 
um, they filmed it in, um, <laughs> so there's a, there's an old national guard armory in San Francisco. Um, it's this gigantic stone fortress, like on the edge of the mission district in the middle of this big metropolitan city. There's this almost haunted castle looking thing that was a national guard armory from, from way back when that was abandoned for a long time or just empty, not abandoned. But in the, for, I don't know, a decade or so longer, I don't know. Um, kink.com ran business out of there. And so like the top floor was like accounting and bookkeeping and whatever, but everything below had been converted to movie, all the, all the, you know, barracks and jails and everything was, and they had these master set dressers come in there. Um, and so, and they basically had the place wired, um, for light and, and sound for obvious reasons. Um, but that's where they basically, it was a gigantic porn emporium, but they also <laughs> rented the studios out. They rented the rooms out. And so they went on a tour and said, yeah, we'll take it. And I was there the day of the shooting. And what's really cool is, um, I had a, I was there for the shoot. I had a pass cause it's, they're, they're a gigantic adult film company and you just can't have people wandering in off the street for obvious reasons. Right, makes sense, um, yeah. And to be honest, I mean, it's a, the place was gigantic and aside from us, I think there was like one floor on the opposite end that had like a red light on. They were doing a shoot that day, but that was it. And they do tours, but they're very tightly restricted for obvious reasons. But I had a pass and they were shooting and look, I know how the story goes. I'm going to take a look. I just spent hours <laughs> wandering. There was like a rodeo rumpus room and there'd be like a, a Nazi interrogation room. And then there was like a, like, like a, a big old light in prison shower room, like everything was different. And the prop warehouse down below had like wheelchairs and candelabras and fake mummies and bondage gear. I was just, and I just saw like a girl in a bathrobe kind of trot down one hallway at one point. And that was the, nothing salacious at all. I was having fun looking at all the sets and props and like every few doors, there's a giant 55 gallon drum of lube with a big foot pump. <laughs> That, no joke. Yeah. Well, it's practical. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's no, I mean, you're not going to buy little tubes of it over and over. So like it was, they were actually just, and I met some of the guys or some of the set designers and, and sound guys, lovely folks, you know? So, but yeah, that was, that was where that was filmed. Uh, Smoke and mirrors was filmed in the, in the boiler room there of, of the old armory. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, that goes back to what I was saying before about like, you never know where you're going to find the thing you're looking for, I guess. Yeah wouldn't occur to me to look at a, a porn studio for the perfect set. Um, I, I don't think they're there anymore, <laughs> but it's a shame. You used to be able to go to not kink.com obviously, but I think it was like armory studios or something like that. And you could, they had screenshots of all the rooms and how big they are and the set dressing and, and the safety gear and everything. It was just, and, and like, you know, inventory of the prop warehouse. It was really wow. cool. That's awesome. I'm glad that we, I'm, gl I'm glad I brought that up because like those are yeah. some cool insights that I had not thought about um, or had not expected, I guess I should say. Um, cool. Uh, what about, so you mentioned the stuff that you're working on now. Um, yeah. Is this like early stages work in progress kind of situation or is there anything you want to say about it? 
it's hard. Um, I've been dragging it around for a long time and I'll be, I'll be honest. I haven't been very public about this, but, but I had a very long stretch where I just did not put pen to paper. Um, I had a, just a bad few years just between like my pub, my old publisher, like just shafting everyone and shutting down. And, yeah. uh, thank God the, the, the uh, author's guild came riding over the crest of the hill on white horses and, and got us our rights back. But still, I, you know, my ebook rights are gone. Um, I almost lost the film rights to it. It was, it was rough between that. And then my agent scraping his Rolodex and getting no takers on mother Howell years ago. I just was really just, uh, uh I didn't actively say I'm not doing this anymore. I just, I, I, I stopped enjoying it for a long time. So, um, I'm enjoying it again. Um, that's awesome. Um, especially getting a lot of love from like, you know, the people at outcast and such. Um, and over the pandemic, having the chance to interview a lot of writers and kind of, you know, get a shot in the arm that I really needed. Uh, Rob Hart, especially, uh, was kind of a happy full circle when I, when I brought him onto the, the library, you know, uh, uh, virtual writers workshop. So the love is finally coming back. So I'm having to blow the dust off some things and get to it. Um, I don't know that it's going to be any more accessible to people than publishers than mother Howell was, but we'll, we'll see what happens when I get there. Um, it is the product of, of, it's an outgrowth of the story in the rumpest vapor trail and the piece I wrote in black clock and I'm blanking on the title, but that one that the character in both of those is, uh, is a, is a side character on the one I'm working on. The story kind of grew from there. It's my love letter to the desert. Nice. Nice. Where there's somewhere out there, there's a scorpion named after me, I believe, if it's still around. Oh, around. I feel like when you, uh, at one point early in, in uh, knowing you, uh, when I was doing Booked, you had said that you named scorpions after me and Livius. So, oh, um, I forgot. <laughs> so there's a Rob and Olivius scorpion, hopefully still running around out there in the desert. You know, it wasn't the one that snuck up on me inside the house one night that was the size of the alien face hugger. Oh, God. But uh, yeah, you've never seen, I posted that on my Twitter feed years and years ago. I was at Rob Roberge's place in the desert. Um, it's there by myself. It was hot scorpion season. The bathroom light was burned out, and I got up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom in the dark. And yeah. I hear this, this rustling and rattling and that's not unusual. I woke up with lizards and stuff in the house. I had the door blew open one night and a roadrunner was in the kitchen. That was a whole <laughs> Benny Hill scene getting that out. <laughs> but I, 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 I went, okay, hang on. And I, I, I got a flashlight and I shine it in the bathroom and this thing, like I said, alien face hugger, and they're not like roaches. They don't scatter. They come at you. They rear up. Um, and I've been in there in the dark barefoot, you know? Yeah. Uh, and this, I mean, most of the ones I see are like the size of crickets. This thing, after I killed it, it sounded like stepping on like a head of broccoli. <laughs> and I put a, I put a torpedo level next to it. I think it was like four plus inches between four and six inches. That's so that reminds me of one year, my brother, my brother was in Arizona. He was going to like a, 
motorcycle mechanic school. Basically, he's just there for a couple of years doing that. And it was his birthday. He wakes up one day, and I'm probably not telling this story exactly right, but it's a story, so whatever. Um, to discover that his car had been stolen. Um, mm-hmm. And as if that wasn't enough, um, while he was dealing with the, tr- you know, like the trouble of, of that, he gets stung by a sto- scorpion. So, oh, God. Uh, not not the most um, smooth, awesome birthday ever to have, but like, uh, yeah. Oh, it was his birthday. Yeah, it was his birthday. <laughs> okay. So, so well, it, the, the ones out here, it, the ones in the South, the black ones in the South Pacific, I think those will kill you. The ones out here just hurt a lot. But the ones out here, did you know this? They glow under black light. I did know that. And I wonder if that's because of you. I probably know that because it, of maybe. you. But that that was really handy. So now I always have a black light with me when I get down there. Before I like, I open the place up, get the windows, brush the sand out, sweep, and I just take a black light, just do a quick sweep around the place for, <laughs> yeah, scorpions. That's oh yeah. There's places that I'm like, oh, should I even want to go there? Because um, <laughs> I'm a real wimp about that. I'm not. I'm not a tough person in a lot of ways. Um, so, but all right. So you mentioned the the series that you did for the library where you were interviewing authors, and this was kind of like a child of the pandemic. Um, yeah, I thought it was great, and um, I really enjoyed it. So, two things about that: are those interactions still available for people to find? Oh yeah, most of yeah. them, or not most of them, but about half of them. Um, we were using. We were using Zoom, and it was easier to record. For some reason, the city switched over to Microsoft Teams, and uh, it's yeah. Fuck. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, I know you can theoretically record on Teams, but you can also theoretically hammer a nail with a glass hammer. That's about <laughs> how useful it is. Right. Um, and I will. So the ones that were on Teams didn't get recorded, and I will never fucking forgive Bill Gates for for me not being able to archive my interview with Helen Phillips. Um, that's the one I was really looking for. I was looking forward to all of them. That's the one I I went in cold. I, every, everybody else on there I had some prior connection with. Either I knew them personally or at least had corresponded or been anthologized with them. And I've never met Brian Evanson in person, but we've right. gone back and forth. Sarah Grant, I know really well. We go way back. David Corbett, likewise. Stephen Jones used to share a website with him, you know, so so – so Helen Phillips, among others, I, you know, I wish I could have had Frank Bills recorded. Um, I do have Sean Cosby's. I just haven't had the time to get to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're all, if you just go to the Goleta Valley Library website, um, go to the, whatever link, they have a YouTube channel on their, from their website, you can link to go to, and there's a playlist on there. I think it's still referred to as the Buellton Library Writers Workshop, but it's actually the Goleta Valley because I was, I started it when I was working up at the branch in Buellton, which is kind of like a double wide. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually not, a, it's, it's actually a decommissioned military barrack. It was a very tiny library. Wow. But I started up there. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I ran the workshop for three months before the pandemic hit. And so I started interviewing. So the ones that I have recorded are on the YouTube channel. There's about six or seven, Stephen Graham Jones, Brian Evanson, Sarah Graham, David Corbett, Joshua Moore, Lydia Yuknovich, Vanessa Veselka. I think those are the ones that are up there. 
maybe I'll have to do a link all links to all those too. <laughs> just like make a huge. I, I would love for those two. <laughs> those were those were because they're really talking about serious like craft stuff. I'm I, I'm working hard to really find what I think is the mate one of the major strengths of each writer unique to them and really trying to crack their code. Yeah. And there's some chuckles along the way. Stephen Jones told a story about somebody new getting a $50 vasectomy out of a van to this day. Oh, I don't know how that wove into the conversation, but <laughs> yeah, true story. Oh my. Yeah. And, wow. and, and he was telling me that, that it, you know, the big thing was it actually worked. And I had to explain to him, Stephen, that it, that it worked is not a big deal. Anybody here can do a vasectomy that works. It's, <laughs> it's whether or not the guy lives beyond yeah. that. Right. So, <laughs> but yeah, Steven's always, that, that was, that was right before he blew up big. That was right before I think only good Indians. And now he's just almost unreachable, which That's frankly I thought that should have happened years ago. I think, I think mongrels or growing up dead in Texas or it came from Del Rio. Those books are the ones that should have launched him, but I'm happy he's there now regardless. Yeah. Um, 100% agree with that. And my anecdote about that is, so I was getting the momentum going on this podcast in the lead up to don't fear the reaper coming out at the beginning of the year. And so I emailed Steven cause I've interviewed him many times over the years and everything and talked about yeah. earlier books and everything. So I was like, okay, this is, this is going to be an easy get because I've got a history with this guy. Um, I said, Hey, Steven, what do you think about, I'm doing this new podcast. You want to come on and talk about don't fear the reaper. He's like, yeah, let me just, uh, can you just run it through my publicist? Which totally makes sense. Yeah. Especially seeing what kind of frantic like schedule he ended up having around promoting that. Oh God. So, he gives me their contact information. I reach out. I say, Hey, I was talking to Steven. He said, he's, he, you know, he said he'd be cool to go on the podcast. He asked me to arrange it. And I get a very canned response from the publicist. that was like, Hey, thanks for your interest. Um, right now we just, uh, can't do it or something. It was a, just a, it's a, a yeah. very black and white turndown. And you would think that that would be disappointing. But to me, I was like, great. That's the best fucking news because that means that, a, he's got people that are really like backing him and B like he's getting bigger attention than probably I could give yeah. him. So like it was the best possible rejection because it meant that like, yeah, his, his machine is, is, is moving. So, yeah. He, he was trending on Twitter one day that really threw me. <laughs> Who knows how that happens? But right. Wow. What, what, what bums me out though is that there's like there's like Rob Hart, Frank Bill, Helen Phillips I mentioned, um, Paul Tremblay. There's yep. there's a bunch of heavyweights that I was able to get that I wasn't able to record. And what's frustrating is is I don't remember anything. I I I, I am so keyed up when I'm doing these. I'm I'm so worried about like trying to you know like again I'm trying to crack the code. I'm trying to be gracious of their time. Um, so, you know, Paul Tremblay, whatever gems he dropped, I hope the people that were there remember because I, I don't have any record of that stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, I understand that feeling. There's a lot of times where, you know, especially if it's like kind of a high energy situation and I'm doing something like at the end of it, I'm like, I don't know. Did that go well? I don't remember any of it. Yeah. So I know that feeling. There was, um, I remember one time. I was I was logging on. I forget who who. I think it may have been Paul Tremblay. I don't know. 
but I look into the the registration and there, you know, Scott Phillips. I went score the, the, the heavyweight, the names are coming to me now. This must be yeah. getting some traction and taking off. And I messaged him, you know, before we started, he goes, no, I'm Scott. I'm your IT guy from the, from the city. <laughs> I went, oh, sorry about that. My, my mistake. So then genius me, I actually messaged Scott Phillips and I said, you'll never guess what happened. I just, you know, I, I was talking to our IT guy thinking it was you. And then I realized I'm probably putting my foot in my mouth with Scott Phillips now telling him I thought he'd shown up, but he didn't, or it got really awkward, but <laughs> at least in my mind, but Scott Phillips was also a guest and, and wonderful. Yeah. Actually, he started I had trouble logging on that day. So he was running the show when I got there. It was great. Oh, wow. He's a cool have, guy. Have you read him? Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've, I've read, I've only read um, one of his books called rake that came out like kind of the mid, mid 2010s, like 2015, yeah. something like that. I didn't read any of his earlier. No, no, I've read two. He had one come out more recently called the left turn at Albuquerque, Albuquerque. That one's um, really good. Real good. And, and, um, yeah, I've seen the ice harvest, but I haven't read the book. Um, but I've seen, I've met him in person a few times when he was doing noir at the bar, uh, you know, readings in the like Midwest and stuff. So yeah, I got to meet him in person. And, um, there was this one moment where, you know, David James Keaton or, you know, yeah. Of him. Yeah. So I think we've met. It's, I think David and I have both have like burner phones. He's the only person yeah. out there that doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So I remember David, we met at AWP and, and we're like, you too. He goes, yeah, right. Yeah. It was, we were just, yeah, nobody, everybody else out there with, with their app iPhones and Androids, <laughs> David and I are just like off the grid. I, I believe I have a photo of that moment. Um, yes, I think I've seen it. Yeah. A blurry photo of that moment, but, um, he they, so there was a noir at the bar reading and Scott Phillips was there. David James Keaton was there, and the call the standout moment of the night for me was the fact that both of them, the both David and Scott, read from stories wherein um, a pregnant woman is either punched or kicked in the stomach. <laughs> oh God! And I was like. What are the what are the fucking odds that like that would happen? And it's like obviously it's terrible and everything, but like there's like a weird kind of like humor to it too. So um yeah. That, and yet I'm the dark one, the transgressive right. one. That shit never happens in my books. You right, know? exactly. Um, um <laughs> have you read have you read Todd Goldberg? No. Um he's got the he's got the gangster land trilogy i think it's the, the third one's about to come out gangster land gangster nation i forget but it's about a a hitman who goes undercover as a rabbi um, oh cool but he he's got a collection of short stories that came out a couple years ago called the low desert and i and i told him this myself i said that the only the most disappointing thing about that collection is that i think the first story was the best they're all great but <laughs> that one but if you like scott phillips track down one i think it turned up in another anthology too palm springs noir maybe but but it's the first story um called the royal californian in in that and, and it's 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 very much got that scott phillips um uh stray dogs everybody smokes and john ridley john ridley kind of vibe to it as well Nice. I, I know I know the name and in the course of doing this for so long, podcasting about books, I've come to forgive myself for not having read everything, you know? Yeah. It's just it's impossible. 
Um, but I'm also like really working for uh, trying to talk to people that I have not in the past and not just going to the same names that I talk to all the time. So, um, you know, um, that's, I think there's a balance I have to find where it's like, I want to talk to the people that, you know, um, I really love reading their books, but also um, branch out and kind of get more experience with the authors I haven't. So that's my um, penance for, for not being able to read everything. <laughs> well, if you can get him, um, the, the, I, I try to find his interviews, not for the right. I mean, he's you know, talk about writing, whatever, Todd grew up in Palm Springs and his mother was a society columnist, mm-hmm. single mom who, who wrote the gossip for Palm Springs and basically dated his entire childhood, had a string of paramours who were all like mob adjacent <laughs> wow. or, or like low level seediness. Todd has the best stories. I mean, he, <laughs> he can hold court. I have, I have never laughed so fucking hard in my, like just having Todd tell stories about his childhood. And, and I mean, his mom had so many sketchy boyfriends that he can just pluck one out of the hat, ask him about the tan man or ask him about the spy. Either, I mean, those are the two that I know off the top of my head. So right. if nothing else, you'll, you'll, you could never talk books at all and just have Todd tell you about some of the weirdos he, his mom dated <laughs> and they're hilarious that's uh that's a good person to have around that's a definitely yeah. a good person to have around um i think we're way off track now yeah, aren't we? yeah. i uh <laughs> well i think we covered everything we touched on everything that i i wanted to as far as mother howl goes and um even beyond a lot so yeah. I'm, I'm feeling like i'm in a good place well i here's the thing um so we're wrapping up so i'm gonna give the thanks right. but um of all the authors that I've, that I've known, gotten to know over the years, like you were, we, we met, uh, in the fall of 2011. And it was like one of the most exciting things in like the beginning of my podcasting career was talking to you. Um, and over the years of doing that podcast, you just become really important, uh, as a person, not just an author. And, um, that's why you got the honor of, of signing off the old podcast. Um, uh, yeah, that was, that was fun. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, so I love talking to you. I love that we had, um, a re- so and in full transparency, when I decided to do this podcast, there were three books that I was like, I need to be podcasting in order to talk about these books. Um, David James Keaton had a book come out in January. Um, so I got to get the head cleaner, head cleaner. Yep. Yeah. I need to get my hands on that. Yep. And uh, Zoya Stage had a book come out called Mothered, and she's just an incredible author. So I was like, I need to talk to Zoya and your book. So, uh, cool. Thanks. One of the act, like, one of the reasons that I'm doing a podcast at all right now is because I didn't want to miss the opportunity to talk about this book. So, uh, it means a lot to me and it's fantastic. So, obviously, I recommend everybody go get it. But thank you, uh, always for being a friend and for making such awesome stuff to read and for, for talking to me. I'll, uh, I'll try not to take eight years before my next one. You know? but, uh, thanks well, for having me on. Yeah, definitely. And maybe, I mean, I can cajole you into co- co-hosting an episode or something. Uh, could have. Let's, let's see who we can get on, you know. Yeah. We'll, uh, Todd Goldberg. Uh, yeah. 